0: Hey guys, Jordan here. Welcome to episode 31 of the Chocolate Croissants podcast, and I am doing the intro. It is my first time. And honestly, this is like the most difficult thing that I have had to do, uh, encompassing everything that has made Chocolate Croissants a living, breathing podcast for the past seven or so months. Uh, There's like all this copy, and I'm trying to format it, and I'm trying to click on the GarageBand thing, but then clip... Or a click on the uh, the the text. I, I don't know. Fuck. Like computers, man. I'm trying, I'm trying here. Anyway, thanks for being here. I am excited because our guest on this episode is a former music student of mine. Uh, his name is Matt Allen, and he just put out his first full-length record. He's 18. Like seriously, he's 18 and he just was on local radio with his music being played and he's performing on it and being interviewed. Uh, this dude is such an inspiration and no matter what your passion is, whether it's music uh, or any type of art or uh, creative endeavor, I think you'll find a lot of inspiration in Matt's story. Real quick, I want to show some love to our good friends at Nata Tattoo. Uh, They're sponsoring this episode as they have the past few. And tattoo they are a certified all natural, all vegan and all organic tattoo care brand. Their tattoo care kit covers all steps from how to treat and protect your fresh tattoos to how to keep them healthy and looking great even when they're fully healed. So Matt Halpern, he's been our guinea pig since uh, he is covered in ink. Um, And he's always struggled with finding the best aftercare treatments because he has super sensitive skin. He's been using the Natta Tattoo Care Kit and loving it. So since he started, uh, he's been using the cleanser for the first few days, then he started applying the lotion and he's continued using the balm. In his own words, the cleanser was easy on my skin, the lotion reduces the risk of inflammation and infection, and the balm has kept everything looking restored and fresh. I also used the moisturizer and balm on my older tattoos and it's pretty freaking cool how much they pop even now, years later. End quote of Matthew J. Halpern. So real quick, Matt and Justin, they met the company founder, Christy, at the uh, Health Expo East when it was in Baltimore, uh, maybe a few months back. And they both spoke very highly of her and the company, uh, which actually started when Christy was in search of the best products for her own kids who also had sensitive skin. So that led to the formation of a luxury bath products company. But once her kids got older and started getting tattoos, her motherly instincts kicked in again, which led to Nata Tattoo. Honestly, what a mom, what a story. So whether you have existing tattoos or you're in the process of getting fresh ones, we'd all recommend giving Nata Tattoo a try. And they've been kind enough to provide you, the Chocolate Croissants listener, with a discount code which gets you 25% off anything in their store. So their website, nat-a-tat, and then the number two.com. I know that's kind of a mouthful, but just check the episode description, it's right there. When you check out, use the checkout code CHOCOLATE25, that's CHOCOLATE in all caps, followed by the numbers 25, and you'll get, of course, 25% off. You can also check them out on Instagram, at natatat2, and once again, the discount code Chocolate 25 at checkout. Okay, on to our guest, Matt Ellen. As I said, he's 18. He just put out his first full-length record. He's getting radio play. He's headlining shows in Baltimore and getting all this buzz. And it's really an inspiration to me um, and and I'd assume all of you who will listen to Matt's story. Uh, In addition to just kind of digging into the process of being a teenager and trying to figure out how to start your own band and get your music out there. We dig into some really personal stuff like social anxiety and self-confidence um, and even like ego-driven motivations and what that means. And the trappings that you could fall into when uh, you're motivated by uh, by something that most of us would consider to be uh, our ego. So, like, for real, he's 18, and he's digging into this stuff uh, for nearly two hours. Uh, it's really impressive, and, and I think you'll find, um, I don't know, he's just, he's different, man. It's, it's really cool, and, and I love spending time with him. This was a treat for me. Uh, real quick, Matt Halpern, he is not on this episode because he is on tour with Periphery right now. He just started the tour, so he's settling into that. So we found another Matt, Matt Ellen. Uh, joins me and my brother Justin uh, in my apartment. And it was a lot of fun, and we hope you'll find some value in it as well. All right, that's enough. Episode 31 is starting now. Chocolate croissants. Thank you for being here. Thanks for your attention. Enjoy. Hey, guys. It is Jordan, and we're here with Justin. I'm here. And we're here with Matt. Hello. But it's a different Matt. That's right. It's Matt E., Matt E, as opposed to Matt H. Yes. Wow, you've done your homework. I have. So we're here with Matt Ellen, Towson uh, Tom, Matt or Towson Tom, his sure. surname. Um, Matt Halpern is. Do you know, Justin? Do you know where he is? I know he started in Columbus, and I think maybe Chicago. I think they started Chicago. I think they went to Columbus. The only thing I think of when I look at you is Poughkeepsie, New York. I know I fucked that one which up. Which is not where they are. Uh. So it is Friday night. November something. and Periphery Matt, and Animals as Leaders are playing somewhere in the world. Yes, they're on tour for the next months. This is the first time that Justin and I have done an episode without Matt. Justin, we've done one without you before. It was a good one you missed too. I know, I'm really bummed out because I do love me some Mike Dolls. Yeah, he's amazing. But uh, an equally amazing guest, Matt Ellen. Uh, dude, so I haven't seen you. When I last saw you, you were getting all your hair cut off.
1: Is that true? Wait, I, I thought.
0: I was sent a picture that you, Matthew, were going to interview, I believe, for college.
1: Oh, is wait, that the but deal? I thought the last time I saw you was you played at, I think, either Hamdenfest or Humfest with reindeer. Oh, you're right.
0: Yeah. My bad.
1: You might have also. Yeah, you might have ran into me when I was getting my hair cut.
0: But that yeah. happened too.
1: That also happened.
0: Yeah. So that was your first time seeing me perform, right? I think so. Yeah. even though we've spent many many hours playing together.
1: Yeah, that was my first time seeing you like cool. in a band context. Yeah,
0: I remember seeing you and being like, "Oh shit, like I want to impress you." Really? Yeah, man. Yeah, because I've so you're you're 18 now? Yeah. Okay, so I'm more than a decade older than you and but and I've always told a lot of people about you. Uh so we met actually I was teaching your mom guitar lessons. Uh-huh. Uh weird way to meet someone. I remember
1: that first interaction, I remember it being awkward. Between you and I, well just the just the situation, just that my parents like called me downstairs because I think I'd been ha- I was like between bands and they were worried about me having people to work with and they were talking about the possibility of maybe you and I getting together to jam, like getting something together between us. You were like 15 at the time? Maybe 15, yeah. I think I had like a black flag t-shirt on and I was like, you know, I was like a punk rock nerd and I, yeah, I just walked downstairs and I remember being really sort of like, whatever.
0: (laughs) What was your impression of me?
1: I mean, you seemed like a cool guy. I didn't think ill of, I didn't think ill of you at all, but I just was, I just was sort of embarrassed, I think.
0: But like. Did I feel uncool because I was giving your mom a guitar lesson? No, it wasn't so much that I was dismissive
1: of that. I think I was just sort of more dismissive of my because my parents were really concerned that I didn't have a band, that I was you know that I couldn't work with anybody because everybody I worked with who was my own age was like they weren't into it. You know. Right. Well,
0: you're also fifteen. It's yeah, right. but I also think Matt is like fifteen going on negative fifteen or something because like to me he should have been born like in the eighties. And he still reminds me of just, he's very early 90s. Well, here's where I was going with it, is that even at that time when you and I started kind of having these quote lessons together where you'd bring your bass and we'd just jam and talk, like you've always seemed, uh, I don't know, just so impressive as an artist to me. Really? Yeah. And that is why when you were at the Reindeer Show, I wanted to impress you. Well you impressed. I was I thought that was a phenomenal set. Well thanks, man. Yeah. All because of you. All <laughs> you, because of you. And, and me. no, like honestly, you uh, and, and I'll I'll share this a lot with people and, and I even tried to convince your parents at the time the best I could. You know, because most parents of teenagers are gonna have, you know, general concern about what they're doing and what their future is. But I was like, man, Matt is special. Like he just has this this natural ability to be so expressive authentically when communicating through music and we would jam and you would just like fucking dig into the music, like literally dig into it with your body. And it was just Matt playing bass and you playing drums. And we would jam for, you know, a long time. Right. And it's, and it's really cool to see, I mean, you were taking the bass as a lead instrument and you played very much in the way of like, of like, a, I don't know, 80s, 90s, Punk era, you know, it reminds me of almost like like uh, rancid style, Matt Freeman, where yeah, you, I mean, like a lead bass line, mm-hmm. and you would just fucking go for it. And I thought the, in in the most, as Jordan saying, it's like the most authentic way. You just didn't give a shit. You just went for it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, my beginnings as a musician were largely based in like I was expecting failure, and I wanted my initial idea was like, okay, I'm going to be a bad musician. And I'm going to make a career out of playing poorly. And what made that like int- integral to me continuing to play was that I I wasn't scared of bad sounds. You know, I wasn't afraid of bum notes or things like that or this, you know, sort of abrasiveness that would come from being untutored as a player. And for that reason I didn't stop. I kept doing it and I kept enjoying it.
0: Did you have early influences or or was there what what drove you to music in the first place?
1: Um, it was an obsession with like 80s hardcore punk. So the Circle Jerks or Black Flag or um, Minor Threat and bands like that and the approach, sort of primitive musical approach that they took.
0: So that actually, for me, actually starts to fill in some of the gaps of where my head was going as the way that you put, put on as a musician. It was pretty right that I could tell your influence from the way that you played. Which is really interesting because I always think of that era in the '80s, like the DC hardcore punk era, as the as the as the genres and like the the one era that Jordan and I, our generation, just missed. Because a lot of times I remember when I was say your age, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, and I was hustling music instruments. I would have this old bass, and I'd be going to sell this cool old P bass, which is probably very similar to the sound of what a lot of the guys were playing in the 80s. And I would take that instrument, I would go sell it to a guy who was 15, 16, 17, 18, 20 years older than me. And almost without fail, they would always go, oh man, Fugazi and Minor Threat Mm -hmm. and Black Flag and like DC Hardcore this and DC Hardcore that, Discord Records, this is what's up. And I'm like, wow, for some reason I feel like even though I've gone back and done my homework on the 30s and 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, parts of the 80s, 90s and 2000s, obviously, because that's what Jordan and I, that's what we grew up with. But I feel like the 80s was, is always the one that we kind of just missed the boat on a bit. We, we got parts of it, but not all of it. And especially the DC hardcore stuff, I think, was just not on our radar. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to hear that even though you're younger than us, right? But you're going back, and your influence was this like one subsect of the music that we just totally missed.
1: Yeah, I think me my interest in in hardcore punk almost felt akin to like a 15 or 16 year old being interested in like ragtime or like some you know something from like the 20s or something because it really wasn't relevant anymore. Like, and still I don't think is, and maybe with good reason. Um, I I remember at the time feeling. I, I couldn't go to shows because I was too young and I was too anxious to be in those sort of environments where people were really uptight and really just uh, generally unfriendly towards kids who were interested in that sort of thing. And it was just like not, it was, it was a thing that I sort of took more of a like, I, I thought of it as more of like a, an intellectual pursuit. It was more of a nerdy thing Cause I would just go on Wikipedia and read like full pages on these, you know, these eighties hardcore records and aspects of the eighties hardcore scene. I read, bo- I read books, you know, I couldn't really like, it wasn't really something I could share with my peers. It was more of like something I made the most of in my alone time. And I developed like a fake
0: Southern California accent that I talked in. So n- not in your music that you were writing, but just as you would converse with others, you just created this accent
1: yeah, it was just like because well, I didn't really have that many people that I was talking to. I mean, all the social interaction I witnessed was was most likely from YouTube videos and like movies like Decline of Western Civilization. I didn't have very many friends like early high school when I first started making music, I was pretty much isolated from everyone. Speaking of
0: the movies, you used to do YouTube movie reviews. I
1: did, yeah. What happened to that? Those were amazing. I stopped. <laughs> well, I felt that I felt that the the humor in them sort of Got um,
0: Ice Age three. That's what I remember. Ice Age
1: three. Yeah, my favorite one is um, I did one of Ghostbusters. Okay, with, yeah. the, with the the
0: female cast.
1: Yeah, because that, that was a controversial film. Right, I remember.
0: You know? I remember this one. D- like, remind us. We'll try to share some of these with the group.
1: Of the of the ghostbusters review remind you of
0: the ghostbusters review just any of these yeah we' we'll, we'll share some of this early work of yours it, sure. it's funny because Jordan when Jordan was around the same age as you and maybe your age now Jordan and his best friend who was the guitar player and a lot of our bands for probably a decade Brian they would run around with like a you know quote unquote old school bigger um Video camera, like a camcorder, and they would just film shit. Mm-hmm. And really, that's I see a lot of what Jordan was doing in you, with the same kind of stuff. Because Jordan was just looking for things to record well, I just wanted and to shit create. to create. Yeah, create. I'm glad that like social media and YouTube did not exist. Um, now, so you totally different generation. So a lot of content that you've created and still are creating as you're, you know, maturing into a human being and like especially teenage years like between 15 and 18 and then 22 it's like in many ways you're a completely different person right um uh it, it's interesting that you're sharing this all publicly do you ever think about that and like what happens if someone sees this 5 years from now um i probably should be thinking about that more i mean <laughs> it
1: is correlated a lot with like what I talk about, because like, people often say that, people my age at least, say that something like Facebook is like a dead social media outlet. and they, you know, Even they, though
0: like two billion people use it daily.
1: Yeah, which doesn't really make sense to me either. But when people say that, when people, or talk about why they don't like Facebook or they prefer you know, Twitter or Instagram or whichever, you know, these sort of short form things, those are things that like people follow you on because they want to see what you have to say. Whereas Facebook is more like you friend your cousins, you know, you friend like your boss, you friend your like first grade teacher. And so when I post, you know, these sort of esoteric videos on Facebook or, you know, wherever, and I share them on Facebook for sort of like the vast majority of my, uh, of people in my social climate to see, um, I feel like I kind of like it because I'm putting myself in an uncomfortable position. It's like, sort of a, a thrill for me I think.
0: Well I guess that's part of the experience of you publishing your art is is you know taking into consideration the context of the platform and the, the audience that'll see it.
1: Of course yeah I mean I'm shirtless on the cover of my record and you know showing off my weird wiry you know na- half naked body and that was part of the reason for that decision because I knew that it would put me in a vulnerable place.
0: Uh, so let's dig into that so where, how do you find value in vulnerability? Well, I think through vulnerability, people
1: can figure out things that they might not search for in routine day-to-day conversation. I am a person who, as a young kid, had a lot of issues making friends and connecting with other people on a personal level. And I think I found that through performance, there was something that came out that people understood that I couldn't express through words. And that, you know, that was a happy thing for me. So I think if you're putting myself in this position where I am uh, sort of revealing that I'm human and human error, people can relate and maybe maybe find something for themselves in it.
0: Do you draw inspiration from art or music or culture or things that you've, you've spent time researching? Say so you, you played on Wikipedia, you'd read full pages. Anything that you're doing now do you oftentimes say, well, this is interesting because I remember when such and such did something similar to this and the reaction they would get from it. And I'm trying to elicit something very similar from maybe not my peers, but those around me that are maybe following me through a social platform like Facebook.
1: Yeah, oftentimes, yeah. Um, People like Andy Kaufman or like Tim and Eric. I see a lot of that in you. Yeah, that's... You're a funny dude. Thank you. You know it, right? i I kind of know it I guess if I didn't know it i wouldn't I wouldn't do funny
0: things sure and it's actually interesting, so you have your guitar with you, you may or may not perform something uh mm-hmm. later on in this episode, but we tried doing a sound check, and I'm assuming what you were playing was a newer song it's actually i was I was doing a cover of a song okay by, uh, silver juice but it, it didn't seem like a funny song, right, but I started like laughing to myself as soon as you started, which I knew was not the appropriate response. Uh But like, I'm used to you like making jokes of a lot of things.
1: Yeah. Well, there's humor in the music that I make because it's an honest embodiment of who I am. And I think it would be dishonest of me to not include that part of my personality.
0: Man, and you're like 18. I know. It's It's so so well-spoken. Yeah, well-spoken and really well-thought. Like Everything that you're putting out there is really well thought out. I mean, when Jordan and I were 18 trying to make music and trying to figure out where to go, we were just kind of flying by the seat of our pants. We weren't putting a ton of effort into the why of each thing we were doing. And it probably, for the best at that point, for us at least, and I am actually thinking of certain things I've been doing more recent in my life that if I had really stopped to think about all of the the steps it would potentially take to do said thing, like currently I'm back in school for another degree. If I had realized that it wouldn't be, I thought it'd be three semesters and I'd have this other degree and be doing this other thing professionally. Well, it's going to end up being five semesters total plus about a year internship that I really didn't know all that much about. If I had stopped and, and really did the research thing about this, I don't know if I would be where I currently am today. So I'm actually kind of thankful that. It almost feels like the things I've done in my life a little bit more haphazardly and just fucking went for it yield the best results. And I and I see the new, but to, I wanted to make a point when, when Jordan, to go back, when Jordan was saying he started to just kind of like internally laugh, I actually was more in the frame of thought of like, no, this is the time that Matt gets serious to really display his art because I've watched videos of you that you've put on, I believe, Facebook, where you're in the middle of a party or like a gathering, a hangout, I think it was at Micah maybe uh, or at Goucher, one of the colleges around here and you really seem like you're the vocal point. You're the one that everybody is like gravitating towards. You're starting to create this community around the music and art and culture that you enjoy and you're letting people experience that through you. And when you start, it's just like, it's very pure and it's extremely honest and you just go for it. Uh Uh-huh. And I loved it. And so for me, when, when I see you perform, I'm like, no, that's just, that's just Matt in his element doing his thing. I want to piggyback off that, but I also want to disagree with you, Justin, mm-hmm. in the sense that when I was 18, 19, outside of music, I had no idea where I was going because music was my focus. But I would say that I was very cognizant of what I was trying to do and, was, and, and had a lot of vision for why I was doing certain things. I think just the nature of entrepreneurship, which was, you know, that's a band endeavor, is that you just kind of take what comes and make the most of the opportunities, which Matt is, you know, at that place now um, and making the most, and we'll dig into that. Um but but Matt, I'm I'm kind of interested because I agree with what Justin's saying of how you're just you seem so comfortable in your skin and it seems as if you don't care what others think when you're performing, yet you've, you've mentioned this kind of social anxiety. So, and, and it's, it's really interesting how it's like very like black or white because Uh some may have social anxiety and then have the confidence of being a performer. Um, but then, but doing it in a way where they want to like please other people. But for you, it just seems so pure. Well, I think it's interesting that you perceive it as me not caring what other people
1: think of me, because I do care a great deal. Um, Though, you know, maybe it would be better if
0: I didn't. Um, I think you're human, and we all do. But I say it because I think you can be very polarizing in the sense that you play to your truth so much, which means you're playing to the edges Where it's gonna turn a lot of people off because they're not into your vibe, they're not into your humor or your style. Um, Now, I think that's the value because if people are attracted to you, then they can be like really attracted to you instead of you trying to like, you know, sand the edges and kind of play to, you know, the average. Sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I realized at a certain point that I think that, well, in terms of humor, that things that are polarizing are funny things that you know could put people in a place of discomfort not necessarily seriously offend or hurt them but make them you know sort of scratch their heads a little bit that is really you know i mean that's hilarious to me and in terms of music i think that the most vulnerable and and touching and and music that i take the most seriously is the music that puts me or puts others out of their comfort zone so people with difficult voices or who utilize you know challenging sounds in the music they make. That's great. At the same time though, I'm, I find myself really unfazed by like, I don't know, like the guy playing like the single oscillated synthesizer note for an entire 45 minute set. Because then at that point, when it, when it gets to that stage of discomfort, it's like, well, this is just a thick impenetrable fog of, of dissonance and you know, of creative aloofness and there's nothing about it that is stimulating to me. I feel like if it gets to a point where it's so um, obscure and esoteric that you can't really pick it apart and find anything in it for yourself, then, you know, it's not necessarily so worthwhile. I mean, I think there's merit to sort of the model of, you know, art for the sake of art and postmodernism in that vein. But I also think that like, I like my music to be shaped by some sort of pop formula so that it is familiar to people and therefore they can understand it on some level. It might take some work for them to initially understand it, but they'll get to it and they'll find some emotional kinship with me, the performer, or with the song itself. Are you the most
0: thoughtful student in your classes? I don't know. I don't talk a lot in my classes. Why? Because um, you probably have a lot to say. Not... i think it probably depends on the subjects do you i mean do you like are you taking very basic classes right now as a freshman
1: i yeah i i would say so
0: and i'm sure that's part of it if you were in your element with a a specific class that was actually relevant or pertinent to something you gave a shit about do you think you would step up to the mic and say what you wanted to say
1: i think so i think yeah i think right now i may be taking my, my classes are a little bit basic at the moment
0: would you bring a mic to speak into
1: no i wouldn't do that dude you should bring a mic why, why do you say that?
0: Why not? Just, you know, get up there and start saying your speech as, as, when you need to. Well, we
1: were just talking about polarizing people. Exactly. I might as well.
0: We could get you a road microphone.
1: Yeah, I'd love one of, like a wireless. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like a headset?
1: Oh, a headset would be great. I think headsets are really underutilized in live music. Because think about it. You can play guitar and walk around and sing.
0: Doesn't like Garth Brooks do that?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm going for the Garth Brooks model.
0: That's what I thought. Do you have uh, apprehension when you go to put so this last record you put out? Did you have apprehension? Did you have apprehensive thoughts of how people would perceive or receive the record?
1: I imagine that they would like it just because I think it was in a considerably more accessible vein than other stuff I've made, which was like very low fidelity and recorded on a laptop mic, you know, by myself in my room. Whereas this was, you know, my friend Daniel has a lot of great studio equipment and is a really talented producer. So I thought people will probably hear this and be like, this is cool. You know, this is a song I can vibe to. I thought a lot about that. I also worried that some people might believe that it, um, it wasn't, you know, maybe people who liked the earlier stuff that I put out, like friends of mine would be like, well, this isn't really him. But no one really said that, has said that. And I'm grateful for that.
0: The the people that you're referring to that when you go to put this record out and you're thinking about the people who you thought would be into this because the quality is is of a, a you know, maybe it's stepped up a bit. Who is that person? When you think of your audience, is there like a specific person in mind you can kind of pinpoint as that's who I'm trying to make the record for and I know if that person gets it, then I'm doing justice or is it or it's some kind of group that's kind of similarly related? Um,
1: I don't know that I really visualize like a specific person. Sometimes you know, throughout points in making the record, I would think of like, oh, my mom would like this. Or you know, my, my sister would really be into this. Um, and you know, occasional friends. But when I think about like the grand scheme of it, when I think of like, who am I really making this record for? Um, that doesn't really, that doesn't, I don't get too many results from that. Um, and I'm kind of glad that I don't either. I think, I think when I, the main person I'm trying to please is myself. Even though it's such an important thing for me to find solace through connection with other people through the music I make, um, I'm hoping that I can go back to what I made months later, or years later, and be like, "That
0: was cool. That I did that." You know, um, you mentioned just the other stuff that you've released, and this is going to tie into one of the questions uh, from someone in the the Facebook group. But so I've been following all your recorded music since I met you a few years ago, and and, and I listened to this record, and, and I heard a couple songs of it, but in the past 24 hours, I listened to the full thing a couple of times. And, and, you know, when you're 15, 16 years old, like, your voice is still changing, just because of biology and things like that. And also, you're trying to figure out what your voice is, you know what I mean? And how you want to use your voice as, as an instrument uh, to communicate your music. and what you're doing now sounds very different from what I heard a few years ago, as it should, but just being 18 years old and having like a actual full length record, it sounds like you've not only in just your literal voice, but in the, the whole vibe and aesthetic of the songs, it seems like it's such a cohesive singular vision that you've come up, you know, that you've cultivate it for yourself and it just seems like you've done that at such an early age and relatively quickly it's not like you were writing songs at 11 mhm
1: well in making this record i i knew that it being cohesive was important to me i don't think that it's a sound that i'm going to sound like you know i don't think i'm going to sound like the record for the rest of my life i'm going to try a lot of new things out but i'm an album person you know some people are song people and some people are album people or you know what have you but I think of myself as someone who really loves listening to full-length records
0: and you know, listening to them like how you would watch a movie. Okay, so with that in mind, I want to share the, uh, the question. So for those listening who are unaware, uh, we have a private Facebook group. Uh, you can join and we will let you in. Facebook.com slash groups slash chocolate croissants. We're over like 1,300 uh, members in it. And like yesterday alone, there was maybe five or six new threads that were started from you guys, in addition to all the other ones that keep going. So really in this past week, it's by far been the most engagement, which is really inspiring for all of us. Uh, The first question uh, comes from Joe Hamilton, who I was actually just talking to earlier, and Joe lives in Bath, England, and he's been very helpful to us behind the scenes at Chocolate Croissants. And uh, Matt, Joe's question for you. Uh, he says, it seems whenever I sit down and write music, it comes out as, completely different, as a completely different genre to the one I was previously working on. I really want to work toward getting a release out, but sometimes I really struggle to know which project or style to pursue, as I enjoy writing in all of them equally. Uh, did you ever struggle with something like this, and do you or would you have any tips to decide?
1: Yeah. So... Um, as I just said, I am definitely a person who believes in the power of a full cohesive album, you know, as a piece of art, but I don't necessarily think that that's applicable to a discography or a career. So I would say, I, I mean, what I what I did for this record was I picked a style that I liked and I, I went with it and I tried to do interesting things with it for, you know, 11 songs. Um, and... I think that as long as you can stick with the style for your full record, then you're good, but feel free to, you know, for the next one, do something entirely different. I mean, that's why people are interested in, like, a Beck or, like, a Sufjan Stevens, because though those artists, you know, every record is different, their natural impulses kind of seep through it, and you can still tell it's them.
0: But do you feel like you've tried writing songs or a style of song, and it just doesn't feel true?
1: Yeah. And I think that's when you, I mean, it's important to sort of go for that sound that you hear in your head. But at the same time, if it just isn't working, then you do much better to just work with the confines of what you can do, or the environment that you're in, or, you know, whatever, you know, whatever guitar you're playing or something like that.
0: It's really interesting to hear you say that you you picked a genre and you try to write within the constraints or play within your own sandbox of this specific genre for this album and the next one could be different because you definitely to me the the my appeal and like the allure for for what what I, why I'm drawn to you is more that I feel like you wouldn't do that you would more say well if Joe wants to make an album that has a bunch of different genres and whatever, if that's speaking to his truth, then like, dude, make that record. And I feel like it's interesting to hear that you actually did pick this one genre and you made a whole album based on the genre and you might pivot and go somewhere else in the next one. Because I I see you more as an artist and maybe it's just me reading you wrong, but I saw you as more of an artist who would just kind of wherever the wind took you that's what you would write but i actually find it more interesting that you stepped up to the plate and gave yourself what seems like a harder task to say i want to write a record that sounds like this in this vein and i'm going to put out this body of my work and the next time as like jordan loves radiohead and he talked about it i think on the on the last episode matt and i we've jammed on paranoid android a few times a few times yeah and i mean talk about a band that you know was like cool this worked great let's throw it out the window and try something totally different Mm -hmm. i actually find that really interesting for someone who seems as open and free as you do do you have any thoughts i mean or, or rather before i ask that question let me go back with the album that you just put out did you end up having songs that maybe went in a direction or a different genre something that you said well this doesn't really fit the mold of what I'm going for this time, but maybe back burner, let's maybe record a snippet of this and I can reference this for the next album or the third album, fourth album.
1: Well, there weren't necessarily things like that, but there were songs that I tried to write to sort of expand the palette of the album that I just ended up hating because it was just written for a reason. You know, it wasn't wasn't something where I sat down and I was like, well, let's maybe work this out. It wasn't, normally for my songwriting process, it feels a little bit more like I'm playing a video game or something you know, or I'm I'm putting all the pieces together. And when I was like, well, I've got to write a song for the record like this, you know, I've got to sit down. And in the two weeks of recording we did, I had to figure out, you know, this is going to be the, you know, like I was trying to write like this dark, heavy folk song that was really experimental. And it just wasn't going to work. I, you know, I was like, this is garbage. Um, But in response to, because I think that using different genres on a record is fine, but I think, I think what what Joe is talking about might be a different
0: what I what I understood it as was more of a sonic approach. So I'm interested with his question. He's saying, you know, he struggles to know which project or style to pursue. And for me, my gut would say whatever feels best. Yeah, I was gonna say whatever feels. Whatever feels like truest for you. Right. And the reality is, is that what works for one person might be and is oftentimes vastly different for someone, you know, with totally different thoughts. And to to be really fair to Joe and for Joe to be really fair to himself, whatever comes out, that might be your voice. And you should have respect for your own voice and you should treat it with, with that kind of respect. You should just be very cool with, if this is how I write and this is what comes out, I don't want to try to write something vastly different. It's it's interesting because when I think back to me and, and my writing when I was younger, oftentimes, and I remember talking about with, with Brian, who was one of the main writers in the bands that Jordan and I played in, oftentimes we would just reference the music that we were currently listening to, and we would figure out how they wrote that song by figuring out the song. And then from there, we'd be able to take snippets of it and start to translate it into a way that made sense for what we actually want it to sound like. And then we could start writing our, you know, try to find our voice through the people that inspired us. Right. So I think in broad strokes, there was a lot of influence. But I know for me, I wouldn't settle on a drum part unless it felt good, very good. And like it was a natural expression of who I am. I agree with that. I, I guess the for me specifically, it was harder to find my voice at that time, and I wasn't a person who played a lot of covers, and I didn't. I actually didn't really enjoy too much of learning other people's music. But I would get really stuck on one specific artist and what they sounded like on an album, and be like, "Wow, I really love what they sound like on this album, and this is very pertinent to maybe the music that we're currently making." And then that would normally shape my sound. It wasn't my specific sound. It was someone else's borrowed sound. And obviously, they probably got it from somewhere else. And I guess to go back to Joe's point, I'm sure there's a lot of influence from the the music that he's listening to from Periphery or the genre, this technical metal genre. But if if you end up having an album really that just has a lot of different influences and it sounds weird, but it's you... Throw it out there. You know, try to get the people that are closest to you that are no bullshit. Like, you can send it to us, you know, no bullshit. And we'll, we'll give it to you straight as, as friends. And we'll give you constructive criticism. And really just see what your friends think. And even if your friends don't like it, you can still put it out just to, just to put your art out, out. You know, just put your art out there. See, so yeah, in the Facebook group, that is what the Share Your Shit thread is for. Um, Matt, I'm interested you don't have a band, per se. I don't at the moment, no. So what's that like? Because what has been easier uh, for Justin and I in in our histories of being in bands is that we could kind of divvy up the work and responsibility, and not only that, but not be like lonely in how do we figure out distribution and how do we figure out how to book a show, but that's all on you. Right. Um, I
1: think I like aspects of it. I mean, for one thing, I'm a control freak and working with other band members in the past has proved to be not always difficult, like sometimes a lot of fun, but sometimes definitely like, I feel as if, well, for one thing, I'm not good at teaching other people my songs. I'd rather they just listen to it and figure it out on their own. But, um, I don't really feel comfortable asking that of people like, go like, you know, here's your homework. So I struggle with like relationships, I think with, um, with people that I work with in bands. Um, and I like you know playing sets by myself. I feel like I, I, have, I have control. I trust myself not to make mistakes because I know my songs um, sometimes.
0: But yet you have a show coming up in a month and you asked if Justin and I would be interested in yeah. playing, which we are. We unfortunately have a wedding that night, but I think we'd still be interested in something in the future if we can get the schedules to align. Um, so but you, so you're looking for a band.
1: Yeah, I am right now. Um, and I do like, you know, in spite of what I just said, I love playing with other people and jamming and things like that. I think just like the process of it in the past, I usually am, am booked shows not super far in advance. So, you know, if I only have like a month or so to get things together, that can sort of make me want to tear my hair out a little bit. Um, in the past, I have played with people who you know, add, like, you know, little things, because rock music is music-based, you know, primarily on simple riffs, but adding, you know, slight variation or improvisation. That's just sort of how you play rock. But I found that, like, if I notice someone is playing, like, one little pentatonic lick that's, like, you know, I don't know, like, two seconds, I'm just like, can you not do that? And then they're just sort of like, aw. And it's like, it's not like, I don't feel like I'm some, you know, corrupt, you know, band leader. I don't think that I've made people who you know, have played with me in the past super uncomfortable or anything, at least not to my knowledge. But I just know that like as a musician, it sucks to be told like, can you maybe like simplify it a little
0: bit? Because, you know, it's fun to play a lot. Totally. But I think there's also something to be said for someone having a singular vision and someone uh, being given the responsibility to make decisions. And at the end of the day, you've chosen this band name to be Matt Ellen. Right. So anything that you're Guitar player would play, like, is a representation of you, and mm-hmm. that's how you're presenting it to the public.
1: Yeah, and I also am like, I think I'm I'm looser a lot of the time with drummers because I don't play drums, so I don't re-
0: necessarily know. Well, it's hard for you to critique something that you really can't, right? You know, I, I guess you can't sit down and be like, do it like this.
1: Yeah, but as a guitar player and a bass player, I have like, I'm pretty like strict about what my guitarists and bassists do. I'm very like. You know, it's like I, I feel like I, I want them to have my hands and my, you know, playing sensibilities. But they don't. They have their
0: own because they're not me. It's very philosophical. <laughs> Jordan and I read a book, and I think we've definitely talked about it on the podcast before, The Music Lesson by Victor Wooten. And, and in that book, it, it references a point where it talks about playing the space and playing the rest and not playing or overplaying the song And I think what's interesting is that I think Jordan and I, from studying and reading the book so many times, I think we probably are both on the same page. I know Jordan's very much for just whatever the best thing to play for the song is, that's what he's going to play. And for me, I always think as a bass player or as a musician, it's really interesting to have a full arsenal, a whole bag of tricks. But when it comes down to it, you know that given whatever song you're playing, you're probably never going to use 99% of those tricks. At the end of the day, you still have to play the core of the song. You have to find the pocket of the song. You got to sink into the groove and really go for it. And to me, the the most interesting lines when it comes to you know, a guitar or a bass or a vocal melody is is the one that kind of holds true to the song through and through and does like one little something here and there where you're just like, wait a second, what was that little candy? I want to find that candy. And you keep going back. Like I'll listen to a song 20 times and I'm like, Oh, I'm all about this one chicka. And I'm like, what was that? Where was that coming? And to me, that's always so much more interesting than trying to feed the ego of wanting to just overplay or play more on a song. Mm -hmm.
1: I think I've been in positions though, where I will invite people to play in my bands and you know, they as musicians think, Oh, that sounds like a fun thing to do. Which I can't blame them for having that approach, but then I think they're disappointed when they realize that it's not exactly the case. Like I'm gonna be, you know, monitoring every, monitoring every single note that they play. Unfortunately for them, um, unless I really trust their musical sensibilities, in which case, you know, I let them go crazy.
0: Have you ever been in their position where you were kind of backing someone else? Uh, yeah. Um, I'm actually I'm playing in
1: a band right now at school called The Christ for Help, and I'm a I'm a bass player, and um, it's more lenient. Like it is more like that kind of thing where like I can you know I can play I can shred you know on on bass and play more lead oriented stuff, and the the guy who's the singer songwriter doesn't really care as much. Um, so I've never really been like a side man for somebody who you know is like is more minute and more strict like myself, I wonder what it would be like.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to think about. Um, I want to pivot out of this and then come back to, you know, the, the record and the the recent opportunities and successes you've had. But, you know, you touched on social anxiety earlier and mm-hmm. I, I think it's something that I, I would bet that many of the people listening uh, right now to this have either experienced at some point, I know there's definitely instances where I will feel socially anxious, uh, or really feel a lot of anxiety about a social situation. Um, but then there's a lot of other people who experience this chronically to the point where they avoid maybe even things that they want to go to or have been invited to. Um, so are you willing to kind of dig into like what your experience of that is?
1: Yeah. Um, so I, I think I would I have what you would call generalized anxiety disorder. Um, and, you know, just to, just to, I tend to overthink social situations and when I'm in tough places with them, or even when I'm in okay places with them, I mean, it's hard for me to be with more than one person at a time in like a social hanging out setting. Um, Cause I feel like I can level with people more, you know, if I'm, if I'm just sort of one-on-one with them. And then when it becomes a group, it's like, well, what
0: purpose do I have? Like what role do I play in this group? Um, so you're in your head kind yeah. of wrestling with the context of the situation Right
1: am I needed here you know which it you know it shouldn't be but it inevitably is
0: and sorry. and uh
1: sorry no continue Well I'm
0: just curious have you learned any strategies to help cope with that
1: Um well I guess so. I think I a lot of positive self-talk is really good and um and reminding myself that I'm probably the only person who's even considering you know, what my role is. Um, but in terms of like, I mean, we were talking about shows earlier. If I am playing the show, that is the perfect situation for me. If I'm playing a show and having a hard time in a crowd of people, I don't know who to talk to, I don't know if I know that person well enough to say hi to them, it's ideal if I'm playing because then I feel like I can really get myself across
0: and then I feel comfortable. See, I, I can relate to that in the sense that uh, it gives me social confidence in the sense that there's context to me being there in a way that could be perceived as like, even impressive. Uh-huh. right? So I could strike up conversation with anyone and like, oh, what are you doing here? It's like, oh, well, I'm performing or I'm presenting. And then in some way, it's like I then feel valuable in that, in that context, right, which is, as I say it, it's like utterly ridiculous to, to even have those thoughts because look, we're all human beings, we all have like infinite value and, and, uh, and worth and things like that, but yet uh, we often trick ourselves into believing otherwise. Mm-hmm. Do you think of it as an, as an ego boost? You know, because with one hundred percent, right? It's an right. Ego because I mean, to, to me, I remember when we played shows growing up, and we showed up. Plus, we went to shows. We would play two or three shows a weekend, but then during the week, we would go to shows and promote and do all these other things. We had a lot of confidence, which I'm sure was just a lot of ego stroking confidence and boosting confidence, because everyone knew who we were. We were always playing shows. Everybody wanted to be on the shows. You know, I mean, there was this whole cyclical that was it was pretty vicious because it wasn't necessarily teaching us to be confident when there wasn't purpose or intent. And that was a struggle for me. So it was like, I relied on that social capital of even if I wasn't playing a show, I was there representing the band I was in to promote or otherwise. And, but if I was just say like at some like distant cousins wedding where no one, I didn't get to play the role of a musician. Right. I would have such a lack of confidence and that's really unhealthy. Agreed. Yeah. I always felt it was extremely lubricating. You would show up and you would just kind of like slip and slide and move your way. I mean, this is all of us. We, would, I, we knew our purpose and that held a lot of power. And I remember the day, which was really hard, the day that we had stopped playing music and then we started to maybe go to a show here and there. And I would walk in and I would feel this social pressure, social anxiety. What am I doing here? I don't know people. It used to be, oh, I know this guy and that guy and everyone knows me and this is that and the other. And now it's almost in a defeating sense and and it was really tough to deal with. I would show up and I'd be like, well, I guess I'm going to get a beer because I needed some kind of lubrication, something to get me going so that I would start to take the edge off. Which is really unfortunate because I feel like if we all, like we're having this conversation now, Mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of us were feeling that way. And if when we went to these shows or when we went to these engagements, like what you're experiencing now, if we had had this conversation more openly, maybe we all would have been like, oh, cool. Wait, we're all in this together and great. We can deal with this together. And so to me, it's really interesting that you're hearing this now because I'm 30 and Jordan's 31 I'm 32. Justin. 32 rather. you just had a birthday, 32. Um, and it's interesting because for and Tom over here, for Matt, he's in college. And I'm sure this is a very normal thing for you to enter a room where you're not playing the show and you're not the center of attention and you maybe don't have the the ump that's like, oh, I should be here. And oh, I do have this worth now. When you walk into those rooms, like for college related, when you walk into a room and that's not going on, are you sitting there and consciously processing all of these thoughts that you're having that maybe I don't really need to be here or I'm not sure what I'm doing here? Or is it more a subconscious thought that just kind of the tape replays itself every time it happens?
1: I would say it's more subconscious though. though Sometimes I can definitely identify it. Like there's a a voice saying, what are you doing here? I think that, a pretty constant internal struggle for artists who suffer from anxiety is well what do why do i want to be an artist why do i want to get my work out there because as someone like me my initial response to that is well it's probably because you're a narcissist you know and you're obsessed with people you know loving you and giving you this sort of excess positive feedback that you that you need and then i can you know, I found a way around that because I've had to, you know, I've rationalized it by saying, well, listen, you know, you are a person who loves, you know, being around other people and who loves sharing yourself with other people while learning things about them and learning, you know, you know, realizing their, their qualities. And art can be a conduit for you to communicate that with them. And you can share it with people who, you know, also make art and make music so I've I've sort of found my way around that rhetoric because I've had to. You know, I can't I, I don't know that I would still be playing shows and making music if I had let that consume me. The thought of, you know, well, you know, you crave attention, you crave, you know, constant validation, I couldn't let that bother me. So the, the you know, kind of the piece of you know, the stuff I, I mentioned earlier about about feeling a connection to people and and, you know, getting Getting, getting close to them through my music, that is, that's my rationalization.
0: Yeah, it, it's a very weird and I'd even argue unnatural thing for a human being to get onto a stage and, and pretty much say, look at me, uh, which is essentially what we do as performers. But I like that you, uh, you know, kind of stumbled upon its connection and that's... That's the thing. That's the, the depth in it. That's the fruit of it. Um, you're, one, you're connecting with yourself. It's, it's this expression, this more confident and, and pure expression of yourself. But in doing that, you're also inviting others present to be able to enter in that space within them, within themselves and ultimately with each other as well. Mm-hmm. And that's a gift that you're sharing with the people that you're doing that in front of.
1: Well, I hope, I, I should hope so. I hope that they take it that way. Um, though I'm sure that they're, you know, I mean, we've talked about it. I'm sure there's some people who, who
0: don't love it. Right, or people are just so stuck in their own heads and that they can't get out of their own ways. But the idea, I, I think it comes down to intention. Mm-hmm. And I know when I'm now either performing or, or doing like one of my beatwell things where basically I'm in a role of either performer or facilitator of an experience uh, I try to be of service and my intention is how can I improve the room? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and part of that is me having like a great fucking time and I can be greedy in that way knowing that the more fun I have, the more loose I allow myself to be. I'm inviting others to invite those aspects of themselves.
1: So you've thought about your incentive for doing what you do. Oh 100%.
0: Yeah. Dude, like, I can tell. to start a company like Beatwell, like is not easy. No. So I needed to know why. Mhm. You know, that had to be really clear from the beginning. I'm sure you needed to know why. Of course. Yeah. Because it took dude, I did it for almost 2 years without getting paid a dollar. Mhm. So there clearly was a lot of of different motivations uh, within that, uh, but but a very significant one was was the value that it would afford me and everyone else that I shared the, the service with. Right. Jordan, you said you're going to go to a show later tonight. Do you have any of those same reservations or feelings going to the show tonight as you've had, say, in the last 10 years? Sure. Uh, it's, it's much lower level than it would have been uh, 10 years ago. Uh, you know, I, I think it's a very slippery slope when when you rely on a role that you play or a thing that you buy to determine your self-worth, right? And, it, and it's really unfortunate that we live in a, in a culture where that is the game. You know, our, uh, our society uh, breaks us the fuck down and tells us that we're broken and inadequate. So ultimately, we play the role of consumer to buy products and services to, quote, Fix that inadequacy. So, like, we're already starting from there, uh, uh, from cultural learning, um, and that's a game that no one ever wins. You know, no matter how many uh, you know fancy cars you buy, or the the nicest suits, or or the the best promotion or accolades of fame, like if you're doing it uh, for the purpose of self worth and self confidence, you can never win that because then you just need the next. And so for me, I've been able, as Matt said earlier, having, uh, I think you referenced, just this like self-compassion or like self-talk that's more positive. That's, that's where it has to start. It's the relationship with our own selves. That's the most important one because that dictates the quality of relationships we can have with anyone else. Uh, that's, that's where we start from. And so, for me, since I've been more mindful and been able to cultivate a healthier relationship with myself, I can go to a show tonight where you know I don't. There's not much context of me being there, um, besides purely as just a spectator. But yeah, that that those insecurities, I think, are definitely a lower level aspect of who I am. But it's far outweighed by the, my own self-love and self-value and things like that. But it took work to, to change. And it took a commitment to doing that. I think it's great that Matt, you have at least self-awareness that, hey, positive self-talk is real. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the realest thing like we have. That dictates everything. That's the lens through which we operate.
1: Right, and I mean I think it's easy for people who focus too much on their ego getting their best the best of them to dismiss that.
0: Well, like, yeah, I mean as Jordan said it's a slippery slope. It's it's like an it's it's the drug addiction thing it's, it's it's like what an addict would go through. It's like, you know, you're always walking the line that could drop you off the edge of the cliff because you're always in this modulation of trying to find the the specific balance because you realize that as quick as I made this conscious decision today that, hey, again, today, right now, in this moment, I'm not going to feel inadequate or less than or not welcomed for whatever reason because my own head is telling me to think that way, I can easily go the other way and say, I'm not good enough. I shouldn't be here. Negative thought, negative thought, negative thought. And the next thing you know, you're, you're right back into the slippery slope that sends you into this like downward spiral of, Whoa wait, maybe I shouldn't be doing this thing that I'm doing right now, right? But if you have that positive self-talk, and obviously it's, again, it's a, a dealing of modulation. You're always trying to find this way to play the balance game and shift it just ever so much to the side where you're, where you're on the positive side, right? And really, I think that for you at least in this, in this instance where you're always gonna be around a bunch of different groups in college, you have a lot of time to practice and that's awesome. Because every time you show up to a group, whether it's the group that you started, uh, uh, what'd you say it was called? The Jose Heads? Oh, Jose Heads, Right. Yeah. Explain whether- what Jose Heads are, Matt. So,
1: Goucher College Jose Heads is a club that I started um, I, you know, at the beginning of my first semester at Goucher College. And it's a club focused on the, um, the admiration, uh, the worship, actually, of Goucher President Jose Bowen
0: how's that actually going for you? And does Jose know what's up? So my
1: dad actually pressured me into telling Jose if we were talking to him at a Goucher legacy event, my grandma uh, graduated from Goucher in 55 when it was still an all girls school. And we were chatting with him. My dad was like, should I tell him or should you? And I was like, why would you bring it up? But I found that um, Jose heads was a, it was, it was something that I, I brought to my schools. We have kind of like a club fair. I don't know what it's actually called, but I set up this little booth and drew like this little caricature of him and like wrote his name on it, wrote the, the club name, I mean. And I got a lot of emails. So I ended up just sending out these, these emails to this long mailing list of people from school um, of little prose poems and occasional little playlists that I would compile. And then we had a screening of a uh, Flying Lotus's movie, Cuso. Um,
0: Does it have anything to do with Jose? No, it's all this about... This is amazing. See, I'm so pumped. Dude, can we be in the club? You can, you can absolutely Is it an open compete. club? Yeah. You don't have to be a Goucher gopher?
1: You don't necessarily have to be a Goucher gopher, though it certainly helps because you can attend the screenings, but it's it's basically... It has nothing to do with Jose Bowen. It's all about my interests and (laughs) things that I care
0: about. So again, this is just, you know, you had a really clear thought. But did you actually go into this with thinking like, dude, this is all about me and my selfish interests?
1: I mean, at a certain point, I started to feel that way. But it was because, like, you know, it was like Goucher College doesn't really have, you know, screenings of, like, these weird art movies that often. And there are, you know, like, I don't hear that many people talking about, you know, the stuff that I give a shit about. So I thought it would be kind of cool to like start a conversation in case maybe there was anyone sort of in the you know, in in the area that I didn't know about who had some similar interests.
0: Did you ever tell him
1: about like the fact that what the club was actually about that, that it exists.
0: exists? That it exists. Yeah,
1: yeah, I did tell him. I was like, oh yeah, I've started a Jose Hetz Club. He was was like, this
0: the first time you had ever talked to him? I had
1: ta- I'd spoken to him briefly at a sort of like a um, like an event for people who had gotten in over the summer.
0: But this was like the. Hey, I'm Matt again, we've met before, it's nice to meet you again. By the way, I started a worship club yeah, based on you. A cult, yeah. A cult based on you. Is he into Flying Lotus? I
1: I don't imagine. I mean he so is, is he a jazz invited? he is a jazz pianist. I didn't invite him because I figured that he would take offense. Which he didn't when I told him. He was just sort of like, Oh, that's funny. And he's hmm. a really nice guy.
0: I'd imagine when you and I were having these lessons a couple years ago and I was trying to help guide you with questions of how do I find musicians to play? How do I book shows? What do I like? You know, all those things that I was wrestling with when I was a teenager. I I'd bet that one of the things that I encouraged you to do was to find ways to build community. Yeah. And that's what you're doing even at, at college uh, what gives you the audacity to do that?
1: Um, I think that, that's a really good question. I don't know, I think it, I just sort of feel, I feel comfortable, I feel very comfortable being funny because then there's sort of a facade to it and I think that people my age have sort of a similar sense of humor to me to varying degrees um, and can appreciate you know, things like being sort of outlandish and loud. So Jose heads is like this very outlandish, loud idea that's sort of absurd. And, um, I think I was like, I, it was clear to me that like, I didn't have anyone to talk to about the stuff that I cared about, like Brian Nino records or things like that, or, you know, these movies. So I thought maybe if I, if I kind of have this, this joking, ironic facade, maybe I can draw some people to it, which has it worked. Yeah, I think it's worked. I mean, well sort of about 10 people showed up to that screening
0: dude like honestly most people especially if you're starting at a new college and don't know others like most people have those thoughts but don't actually act on it and have the courage to say here's a thing that I'm facilitating or starting and this is this is my thing and I'm inviting you to come like that because that you know ultimately you're risking rejection Mm-hmm. Right. But for you to have 10 people to come to something like that, like to make 10 friends your first semester, that's really good. Like that's a fucking that's win. Something, yeah. Especially with very little context.
1: Right. Because no. like, did
0: you tell anybody that like, oh, by the way, this group that you're giving me your email for is kind of just like, I'm going to show you some shit that I really enjoy and see what you think.
1: I was in character for the whole event. So I was sort of like stuttering and like acting really nervous, which I guess I kind of also was. Do people know it's a character? They have an idea of it. I mean, I also i, I also post a lot of videos in my, my freshman Facebook group. I got banned from it initially because they thought that I didn't actually go to school there.
0: Let me, let me say one thing and then I want you to dig into that because I'm really interested in that. But uh, do you get off on facilitating or coordinating people? Do you like bringing groups together? Because it seems like you like curating and facilitating, coordinating when it comes to you making your own music and then getting the right people in place, hopefully, to help you make this music come to life. And it seems like you're doing the same exact thing with bringing this group together because you're realizing and maybe and it's, it's a little selfish, but who the fuck cares? You're like, I have these interests. I want to scratch this itch. I don't know who the fuck to turn to. Hey, I'm going to make this facade, this joke, this fake front thing going on. That's about this Jose heads. You guys love this guy, Jose, whatever. By the way, I'm just going to show you some shit that I really enjoy and see what you guys think.
1: Yeah. I mean, when I, I've, I've booked one show by myself in my life and it was, I think you guys were there. It was, um, a band that I was in a noise punk band early in high school with my best friends called Jive Rambus Coalition. And we the booked show this. was
0: awesome. Thank yeah. you.:
1: Yeah, we booked the show, I think it was two years ago, um, at this space called Charm City Art Space, which is no longer around. But I do remember feeling like, wow, everybody is here because of me, and we're all going to enjoy, you know this thing that I love so much, which is you know DIY music and, and running shows and appreciating each other's music. And there was like this sense of it was a real thrill to just sort of see everybody there doing their thing and and really enjoying it and it was something that i coordinated and i guess that's how people who really are into booking shows feel and that's why they do it to some extent
0: since we started this conversation i swear somewhere in like the back right side of my brain i've been hearing one of the riffs that you played that night that's how much it resonated and like jordan and I, I i hear it too right it's like ben I know the song you're talking
1: exactly about, yeah. right
0: and it's I swear it just keeps it just keeps like it's on this weird loop in my brain since we started this conversation or since we started hanging out with you and really that's how much it resonated it doesn't I mean that's a lot I mean that's a couple of years ago the one show I never heard these songs before Jordan and I stood there right in the front and we were like oh shit like that was fucking awesome and then like oh fuck that part was incredible and like oh my god that was incredible and not only was it the music, but I'd argue even more so it's your presence and it's the banter between the songs mm-hmm. uh, and the emotion you convey because you really just it whether you're putting it on or not, it seems like you're giving everything you have because this is your thing, this is what you love, this is what you want everybody to share with you
1: well from the t- to the time I was you know. 11 or 12 I was really into the stage present aspect of performing and before I played any music at all I would sing in punk bands and my whole thing was that I would really go all out you know I would jump around I would scream I would I was really obsessed with banter that was my main thing which everyone hated at you know like these school of rock type showcases where everyone's just there to see their kid athletically play music you know but I remember I was just sort of like I was I saw the way that people reacted to the fact that I was really being like a lead singer and you know, it was like they were laughing at it. They were like, This is ridiculous, this is too much. And I was like, That's this is just what people do though. Like this is what Henry Rollins did. I didn't realize the fact that, you know, a thirteen year old imitating Henry Rollins was a totally different thing from actual adult man Henry Rollins being, you know, scary and ominous. But at the time I was like, This is what it is, you know, this is what being a singer in a band is
0: about. How much would you say your your high school influenced you uh, just as an artist and a person because you didn't go to a public high school. No, I went
1: to Sudbury Arts and Ideas, which is a, a school that's based on the Sudbury Valley model. And Sudbury schools are schools like them, like free schools. There's a, there's a few different variants on them. They don't have any classes, curriculum, teachers, grades. There's none of that. We have adult staff that sort of tie the whole thing together. But may, for the most part, you know, other than some student governmental stuff, um, kids are encouraged to do whatever it is they like. So that's how I learned music. I had so much time in my day. You know, I was there for five hours a day and I would play bass all day and then I would go home and I'd play bass, you know, for
0: more. Yeah, <laughs> I know... More you know, know hours. I know your parents... The rest of the day. I know your parents are intelligent people um, and both professionals, but if you weren't... If you were just kind of doing music in high school, like, how did you become the smart articulate dude. Well,
1: I also read a lot, I think. Like I mentioned earlier, I did a lot of research on the music I was into and that persisted through all of my different musical phases. And I got into reading like I don't I don't mean I don't know how much of a contributor to this this was, but I started reading poems and that influenced songwriting a lot and also presumably my like vocabulary. I'm glad you think that I am I am smart.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're very, you're very philosophical, and not just for an 18-year-old, just in general. You have really great thoughts on a lot of different subjects, especially, we're just having this open conversation. We're throwing a lot at you, and you haven't really wavered, which is really, it really impressive. It doesn't feel like I'm with a teenager. No. But I've never felt, even when you were 15, I never felt that when we were engaged in a musical relationship. Like, mm-hmm. you always, yeah, you didn't have the experience. But it didn't feel like uh it, it felt like I was playing with a contemporary, and I felt like you know you challenged me to really to work yeah, you know I, I I've taught like I'm sure over a thousand, if not thousands, of lessons at this point, and it's very easy to kind of phone it in in a relative way uh, as a musician, not always as an educator, I try to be fully present in it, but as a musician, you know like. I'm just playing the same, whatever, eighth note rock groove again. But with you, like, I was fully alive in the music. And to my point earlier about how you, as a performer, uh, the way that you uh, show up in the world is an invitation to allow others to meet you there, you provided that for me because you were so present and committed to the musical experience that that allowed me to join you there. We used to play for hours.
1: It was it's, crazy, and
0: it was and it was easy. It was easy.- mm-hmm. you know? Because it was just there was that that presence and that that aliveness and excitement of just creating music.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. And it was I mean, Justin would join in sometimes. It was like a thing, and it was very it was a very natural thing. We would just plug in, I would plug in, you know, and you would just sit down and we'd play. There was no sort of afterthoughts or preludes or anything like that.
0: And actually I, I have one other student in mind who uh, I'd say is probably on the autism spectrum and I can see, and, and, and a significant part of our lessons are jamming and I can see how, uh, and, and I've had this conversation with, with his parents before uh, where they're questioning how is this valuable because most music lessons wouldn't be like that. You're talking about School of Rock where it's more of this like athletic performance. Yeah. Uh, but it's like, why are you learning uh these skills and, and this vocabulary? Well, it's to communicate and to converse and to join with others musically and so I think jamming is the end goal and and that's how from the the Victor Wooten book that Justin referenced earlier, like that's how as babies we learn how to speak our our vocal language we jam with our parents that are far better you know quote, musicians than us, and we make mistakes. It's, so it's the same thing like with music, to me, like jamming, that's where you live it.
1: I think, I'm, I'm gonna reaffirm something I said earlier, which is that I, I really strongly believe that a musician needs to learn to love the sounds of their mistakes, because in just playing, rather than, than learning terminology or learning scales, eventually you'll realize, well, if I put my finger here, it will do this, if I put my finger here, it will do this and you, you don't forget that. So I think that in order to get there, you really just need to play, regardless of what it is you're playing, even if it's just, you know, scronk noise.
0: Good adjective, scronk. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> I picked that up somewhere. Uh, so, I, you know, we talked about some of the things that I, I, I tried to help guide you with in our lessons, and, uh, and I, I know we've talked about studio time, and kind of like if you're gonna record what to do, and so you're not wasting time and money and things like that. So we have another question from David Wilson, who's in Pennsylvania, from the Chocolate Croissants Facebook group. He says, hi, Matt, I'm entering the studio in January to begin recording my debut solo album, and I'm wondering if you have any tips for studio etiquette or anything like that. Also, how do you approach writing for an instrument that is not your primary instrument? So I'd imagine, one, obviously, you've had the studio experience, yeah." And you said, you were telling us earlier, there was one guy who played drums and a lot of instruments. Yeah, Daniel Neiman. Were you guiding that in any way? So I was, yeah,
1: I would tell him what to play. I was sort of, it was very much, it was, I would say, a collaborative process in that he would occasionally write synth parts or drum parts or, you know, whatever instrument it was he was playing. He played a lot of instruments on it. Um, But it was sort of the, the kind of thing where I got hearsay. I was like, no, I don't like that or I like that. Um, and it was his studio as well? It was his home studio, yeah. He ha- had a studio set up in his bedroom. Um, we, you know, we had like five primary mics that we would use and he used Ableton
0: Live. So I'd imagine it was a lot more relaxed than if you were to go book time at a studio.
1: Yeah, I mean this guy is like my, my best friend. We've been making music together forever. And um, Have you
0: paid for studio time before?
1: No, actually. Well, there was, I have had one studio experience, which was at Peabody University.
0: What did you learn from that?
1: I found that, I mean, time is definitely a concern, but if you can, if you can trust the atmosphere and learn your surroundings and base what you try to do on that, as opposed to, you know, translating the sounds you hear in your head onto the recording, you're going to get better results. And that's, the, that's the, you know, I mean, the same goes for working on this record. I would have these ideas, and I'd come in, and you know, it's okay to shoot for you know, these long-term creative ideas you have where you're, you're like, it has to sound like this. It's okay to try, but if you're really not getting it, you can't, you can't Brian Wilson it. You, know, you can't just spend infinite hours because you need it to sound the way that you, that you daydreamed it. You've got to trust what you're working with, the instruments you're working with, the room you're working with, you know, the people you're working with, because you're not going to get it that way.
0: I think that's good advice. A couple of things for David, depending on the context of the studio session that, that he's booking for himself uh, in January. I think one, like doing your homework as far as meeting with producer, or engineer, uh, going to the room and, and kind of knowing what you're getting into and what it might sound like and feel like and look like. Uh, just doing those things to, to instead of committing uh, money and time and then realizing this isn't like what you were hoping for as far as the people and and the environment. Uh, I mean, basic stuff like practicing, like knowing tempos. Yeah, Knowing what the tempos of your songs are and if there will be tempo changes and then practicing to a click track at those tempos because performing on stage is very different than performing in a practice space, which is very different from a, a recorded performance. And oftentimes like the the perception of time can change. So you may get a, a click track and, and realize that, oh, this feels a lot slower than I'm used to, or it might feel a lot uh, like faster than I'm used to. So I think just having that preparation, the more you're prepared in those ways, then I think that gives you more freedom to Matt's point of of being a bit creative and trying things because you're not spending your attention and energy on just trying to like get your shit together. Yeah, at a macro level, know what you can afford, what the studio costs, how much time you're going to actually be there, and then try to get down... The pieces that you know you can actually get done up to your standard in that given time. Because the worst thing that happens is that you go there and you end up getting nothing accomplished, which is really unfortunate. And so a lot of this comes down to, as Jordan was talking about, doing a lot of this legwork, this preemptive legwork, which for a lot of people would be the pre-production portions, knowing your tempos knowing what instrument you're going to potentially or hopefully use for that specific part, knowing where you're going to go and really try to figure out all of the variables that could mess you up along the way so that you're ready for when variable change actually occurs. So you can say, oh, this isn't working. Let me quickly pivot before I just end up wasting a couple hours or the entire day. The other thing, when it comes to the instruments rather that you may not know as well practice, 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 because you have to get as comfortable as you can on those instruments so that you can give the performance As Matt, to, like to Matt's point, that you're happy with. And that's highly subjective. You might be okay with whatever because this isn't really your instrument. But if you have a high standard, then you need to get to work on those on those pieces without letting anything else slip because that's going to be paramount because obviously you want to give the best performance. You want to be able to produce and present whatever it is that you're hoping to convey. And if you show up and it's, and it's not even close to that, you're not going to be pumped about the time and money and energy that you spent on this. So once you have a recording or, or an album, uh, we talk often on this, on this podcast about the business of, of creativity. And I'm curious, Matt, when you finish this record, did you have a plan of okay now what do I do?
1: Um, no, really, barely. I just wanted to release it, and I remember I wanted to release it a lot earlier than it ended up coming out. But people discouraged
0: me from it. Why? And were they right to do that?
1: Um, I think ultimately, yeah. I mean, they told me I needed to plug it a little bit and put out a song, you know, sort of a a song beforehand, and maybe do like a Facebook ad, which I ended up doing, and I, I think that helped me along the way. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I definitely wanted it to be this because there are people in Baltimore who know who I am who have seen me play. And it's been a long time, or it had been a long time since I had like a long term record out, something that you could listen to for a while. Um so I I kind of just wanted to drop it in this sort of weird, mysterious way and see if it would attract any attention at all. And then if that didn't work, I would learn from that for the next record. I still probably didn't wait as long as I could have. You know, I could have hyped it up for a lot longer, but I really just
0: wanted it to be out. Of course, and and a lot of artists, even you know, the biggest artists in the world, will also just release something, uh, and then and then build from there. It's how like a lot of TV series on Netflix is done. Mm-hmm. Um, look, and, and I think the point is that there's no right way to do it, and what works today might not work six months from now. So you spent some money on Facebook ads. That's a real thing. Yeah. Uh, you've had some blogs cover it, review it? Um, yeah, one or two, I would say, have done that. So did you pitch it to them personally? Have you pitched it to many websites or publications? Yeah, I've sent, I've sent it to a handful
1: of people. Um, I don't hear back from a ton of people, but TMD was really the first big breakthrough moment that I had.
0: Right, so WTMD is is a local radio station uh, that's part of Towson University, but they've really, I mean, they, they've expanded far beyond being perceived as like a, a college station. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd argue they're at least for the the rock genre and all that that encompasses. They're by far the the most significant in the sense that I mean, I just saw. J. Roddy Walston, the business, performed live there a couple weeks ago. Uh, and they're having live performances that are being streamed on Facebook and also live on the, on the radio, like weekly. Uh, they put on these huge free concerts downtown, uh, like five or six months out of the year, that are free and thousands of people come up. So, I mean, they are a legit radio station. And Matt, a couple weeks ago, I was driving home. And I heard a song on the radio on WTMD, and I was like, hmm, "This like this sounds kind of like Matt, but they wouldn't be playing him unless it was like the local, you know, uh, uh, show that they have, the Baltimore Hit Parade, which we'll dig into in a sec. Um, and even like, you know, I'm in I'm in reindeer, and and WTMD has been very generous to us. Uh, I, I still weekly get you know, Snapchat videos or whatever of. Hey, your song's on the radio, and they've been playing us like consistently for nine months or something now. But I was like, "How did, how did Matt get here?" And I was like, "Is this a Bright eye song that I've never heard of before?" And I'm friends with the DJ who was on air at the time, and and Matt Galler, And I was like, "Yo, what song did you just play? Who was that?" And he was like, "Oh, it was this kid who just like wandered into the station, handed us a CD." We all listened to it. We're like, holy shit, this is great. And I was like, is his name Matt? He's, yeah. I was like, dude, that's like an old student of mine. Mm -hmm. So that's what you did. You just walked in there. Well, there were a few different things that happened at once,
1: kind of. I um, was friends with Sam Sessa on Facebook and I had sent him kind of an earlier song of mine and I don't think he was into it. I never heard back. Explain who Sam is. Sorry. Yeah. Sam is the host of uh, hit Parade on WTMD And he sort of Handles a lot of the Festivities around there Regarding the local music um, But I Yeah I'd, So I'd sent him the, the album And I didn't know it But I think he Might have listened to it And then on the other hand My my mom was working At a A Kugel judging competition Or at, not a Kugel judging competition Sorry She was judging A Kugel competition Explain
0: what Kugel is I don't
1: How do you explain What Kugel it's is It's this
0: noodle It's a Jewish dish Right It's a, a Jewish ju- it's dish Jewish It's Jewish right. cuisine Noodle based Yep It's I'd say it's dessert. It's sweet. It's a dessert. I yeah. think what happens is and I'll I'll give it to you. They use use egg noodles, so it's very rich. I think you use eggs that mix into it, which binds it together. And then generally nowadays we take it over the top and we put some kind of like a, a sweetened cornflake crust on top of it. And it ends up being like a dessert, yet people serve it next to stuffing and mashed potatoes and whatever else as if it's like a, just another side dish even though it's coinly sweet. And your mom was judging a, a competition. Right, a my Google. mom. Yeah, a
1: Kugel competition. She is an editor for Jane magazine, so she's sort of a face in like the Baltimore, I guess reformed Jewish community. And um, so yeah, she ended up judging this competition she found out that Sam Gallant was also going to be judging it, who I don't know what sh- what show does he host?
0: Uh, he's, he's just, uh, you know, a, in regular yeah. rotation, uh, he has like, you know, a Monday through Friday shift as a on-air talent at right, WTMD.
1: Yeah. Um, so she also managed to give him the CD. So it was through a few different ways that that ended up happening. Okay. Um. And me going to the studio, I guess. So, I but you
0: also them. physically went to the studio.
1: Yeah. Cause a friend of mine who's in a band called Legends of Etc., which was getting a lot of WTMD airtime. I guess they still do. Um. I asked him, what should I do with this with this record? I was wondering if you have any ideas, and he just told me I should go to t m d and I had always thought of them as as a station that wouldn't really go for me. I didn't really think they would be interested in what I had to say or do. I don't really know why now, listening to your record, it fits perfectly. Well, I think around this when we were making the record, we sort of were like, mm, this maybe seems like something they would like. So I thought you know when my friend suggested that I was like, okay, maybe. How do I get it to them? Do I email it to them? He suggested I walk there. So I did, and I remember I was dressed kind of eccentrically. I had, like, these, like, pink pants on and um, this, like, blue flannel that was, like, flopping everywhere. So I was like, oh, this is perfect. I look like, you know, I look like a funky young artist. And, yeah, I talked to Scott Mullins, who is the program coordinator, I think, and he was super nice, and he told me, you know, I've already heard this record. And I was like, whoa. Um... So I guess it had either gotten to him through Sam through Sessa Sam or through Sam Gallant. Um, but yeah, and then I, I was walking home and I got this call from Jordan that this, a song from the record called Friends was playing on the radio. And I was super ecstatic. I was really happy. And then you know it, I got an email from Scott and I got an email from Sam asking me to be on Hit Parade.
0: What was that like for you? Because you, you were interviewed, but you also performed as well. Yeah. And it was pre-recorded. Right. Um, It was nerve-wracking, though, even though it wasn't live. Um, Had you done an interview before, in person, like you're doing with us now?
1: No. No, that was probably my first interview.
0: And you played the songs acoustic by yourself? Right, yes. Were they expecting you to show up with a band? I don't think they were, no. Okay. So was the interview process anxiety-producing? And another question... Did your mom, who's been a, you know, a journalist and a media professional for many years, uh, did she prep you in any way? Um, she didn't,
1: no. I think the interview was a little bit less nerve-wracking than the performance. I love talking, and I really love talking about myself, um, and I really love talking about music. So that was, that was something that came a little bit natural to me. The performance itself, um, I mean, I'm really diligent in my performances that they are you know, the right way and the way I want them to be. And I remember at a point, my legs sort of started shaking convulsively and I couldn't stop them.
0: I've had that happen multiple times throughout the years. Like the first song of a set and one of my legs would just start like tweaking out and it's very unexpected and concerning. And now I've learned like my body is just like very stimulated right now and it'll pass.
1: Yeah. I mean, when people say that performing is like a drug, I really think that's true. 100%. You're in a totally different state of mind. So were
0: you happy with the performances?
1: Um, Well, after I recorded them, no. I was considering actually asking Sam if I could go back and re-record them. But when I heard them on the air, it sounded fine.
0: What was it like to hear you on the radio for the first time? Um,
1: Uncomfortable, but really only because I was in class and my teacher had given me the privilege. You know, she let me... Listen to it in class, but the whole class was listening to it, just right there in my, my Fiction 102 class. Oh, right.
0: I did see that you had posted that, like, oh, damn, I'm on the radio tonight, but fuck, I'm going to be in class.
1: Yeah, something like that. So
0: you listened to it with your whole class? Yeah. What was that like? That's amazing.
1: Oh, it was so awkward. I was really uncomfortable, but everybody was, like, very nice to me, and they, were, they said some really sweet things. And, um, you know, I mean, yeah, it was a, it, there was a little bit of tension. You know, I sort of felt like I was imposing on them a little bit, but they didn't act like that at all.
0: I mean, I think how interesting of a thing to, yeah, to get be to a share part of. In, Yeah, they get to share in your moment. Yeah, of which, of which for your generation, and I know there's going to be future generations that won't be able to share in this really cool thing that it is to be on the radio. Well, I was going to say like how and how many 18 year olds are on a legitimate radio station, not only just having their music being played, but Being featured with an interview and a live performance, like that's really special. It felt special. Yeah. Do you realize that it seems like every time you're feeling kind of awkward and out of place and different, it always seems like there's this light at the end of the tunnel where everyone's like, "Oh wow, that was really cool." Sure. Yeah. It seems like every story we have, you know, almost every story, it's like, "Well, I was feeling really awkward and kind of like I'm not really sure," and then the next thing you know, it's like whoa, all these positive effects came of this. Do you ever think about that and say, well, hey, maybe I am making a lot of these right decisions and I keep putting myself in this position where I maybe feel a little bit off, but it keeps yielding these crazy results that are really positive. I don't think that is
1: something that I I routinely think about, but thinking about it now, I'm realizing that maybe you're onto
0: something. I mean, think about it, right? You freaking walked into the radio station. That seems very yesteryear. It doesn't seem very common these days that people are out there on their feet, stomping the grounds, trying to get shit done. It's like you don't see people handing out flyers anymore to shows. Not often. Not often do you see people going out there or... I think Jordan actually did it when he played this big festival. He made these really interesting uh, flyers and kind of posted them around. And unfortunately, it didn't work out because that show got rained out. But I think it would have yielded a great result because it is so different now. It, it worked. And and out of the few dozen bands that played over that three-day festival, we were the only one with like consistent visual marketing there. And in that sense, like what's old is new again because right. everyone... Is on Facebook, but not like we were the only ones with like physical, you know, visuals and, and advertisements at that festival. Yeah, that worked really, really well. And what's old is new is extremely applicable to a radio station like WTMd. WTMd because albeit they are a radio station and radio doesn't seem like it's the most flourishing, thriving format these days. They are ridiculously progressive and they are creating community. And Jordan and I remember that extremely because when we grew up, we listened to an alternative rock radio station that put on some of the biggest music festivals there were in the country. And really that was like a highlight for us all the time. And I'm sure there are a lot of people that are disciples of the WTMD world that and i remember going years ago and they would do local shows for their supporters and like their core community would get to show up and have these amazing performers like ani defranco Mm -hmm. would play a small intimate set for the supporters of the community and i think it's really really awesome that they they didn't look at you as this guy who's like oh well he's young he's this he's whatever they were just like no 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 he's an artist check out his music and he's great. And I don't think it really mattered that you showed up and you were flamboyant or that you were dressed a certain way that day. You'd argue that I think that does matter because it makes him memorable. I'm sure. uh, No, no, no. I'm not to argue that, uh, not to say that it wouldn't help you and that it's not interesting. And it still almost feels different this day and age for you to really go against the grain and show up more flamboyant, which reminds me of a lot of these lead singers, or a lot of these musicians that you thoroughly enjoy. So at least you're playing to your truth of the shit that you actually like, and when you show up, it actually works. But I still think that because the music is what it is, and the music fits the format so well, that you're a shoe in You just had to show up and do the work, and that's the piece that a lot of people miss.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I was sort of thinking about their, what their perception of me might be. You know, like, of course he's here, is what I thought they would think. Um, but they weren't like that. And it was... Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I think of it as sort of like the Daniel Johnston business approach. You guys know Daniel Johnston? He was like a songwriter.
0: But I don't know what you mean by his business approach.
1: So what he would... I mean, what he would do is he was... You know, he was like me. He was an awkward guy. He was, he was a weird guy. And his approach for getting his music out there was... I mean, he worked at like a McDonald's. So, you know, he'd put tapes in the bags. Or, you know, he would just approach these people and people wouldn't really know what to make of him. He would just sort of be like this this guy just gave me a tape. Just It was sort of like this weird, one of those things, one of those moments that makes people, that puts people sort of in a state of, um, <clears throat> you know, of just sort of wondering what just happened to them. Where this person just sort of hands them, goes up to them, introduces themselves, and, and hands them a
0: tape. And where we started this conversation was, you know, Matt made a record, and it was done, and now what? So you're even saying that not only have certain musicians been musical influences on you, but certain musicians have been, you know, business and marketing influences on you. Yeah. And I think that's really cool that, whether that's premeditated or not, these are things that you're paying attention to. Because ultimately, as an artist, and if your goal is to, you know, whether you make money or not, but have opportunities to share your art, then you need to have these skills to, to get you to that place. Music marketing is becoming art itself. One hundred percent. And and I even saw this morning, you know, Matt Halpern uh, posted a video uh, saying that, you know, he was teaming up with uh, uh, Finn's Punk Rock MBA, who is a former guest on this podcast to specifically help create some content, um, you know, about music marketing. Yeah, and DIY marketing. I'm sure it'll be very successful because uh, it it's not natural for a lot of artists. Um, real quick, before we get too far away from the... Uh, the WTMD stuff, I just want to acknowledge uh, Wilson Adams from Nashville, uh, who pretty much asked uh, what you already answered, Matt, about talking about how you got airtime on the radio uh, and things like that. And and he mentions he knows some cities are really big on supporting local artists more than others. And fortunately uh, for us, we have a radio station in Baltimore that is very Baltimore-centric and friendly. Uh by the way, Wilson, I'll be in Nashville Saturday, January twenty-seventh for Ring of Honor TV taping. So we expect to see you there. Hit me up, man. We'll figure something out. Um, do it, either of you know if 98 Rock, another local Baltimore yeah. rock stables, do they still do noise in the basement? They don't, as far as I know. It's crazy. There used to be when Jordan and I were growing up, there were there were at least a few I can think of that did a locals only radio show, and it wasn't really that hard if you had a decent recording to get your stuff on the radio Hmm. and now having a decent recording 10 years ago or 15 years ago was was really expensive and different. Absolutely. I agree with that. Now the fact that you can do a DIY record like Jordan and I, the last record that we worked on together was, was done in a bedroom. Right. And, and that can stand up as having extreme artistic value is a whole different world versus years ago when I remember buying studio time down the street from where we are currently, and I was probably 16 or 17, and we were paying something like 40, 50-some dollars an hour, Mm -hmm. which really, at that age, mean, you end up racking up a really heavy bill. Matt, I'm interested. After WTMD, what changed? Did you feel... Have you gotten more opportunities? Have you gotten more... Are people like... Uh, coming to you more?
1: I get a lot of emails about shows, though I'm not sure if that's necessarily a result of TMD or whether it's a result of my, you know, maybe the record just getting around online. Um, people definitely do seem to, like other musicians who I talk to in the scene, seem to have a little bit more respect for me. I mean, I think that having sort of these lo-fi demo tapes and EPs out of songs was not really enough so I, I definitely, even while recording this record, though I was making something that I thought was, you know, legitimate to what I wanted to do as an artist, it was also definitely kind of like, well, this is the next step. This is sort of what I need to do to get my name out there, to record this sort of more produced record, um, you know, and, and put my, my songwriting in a place where it can sort of stand up independent of any kind of, you know, gimmick or aesthetic.
0: I'm curious, when you decided on this particular vision or aesthetic for, for the record, which, by the way, is called All Is Not Lost, did you take into consideration how this might fit into some sort of vibrant uh, music like community or scene or genre? Because, and, and I ask that because we mentioned before this, we started recording Parquet Courts, uh, the band Parquet Courts. Uh, Justin heard a lot of that in you, as, as do I. Um, and even when I first heard it on the radio, the first thing I thought of was Bright Eyes, who's a very successful artist. Uh, but this morning I watched, it may have been last night's, uh, you know, late show with Stephen Colbert and Kurt Vile and Courtney Barnett were performing on it. And I was like, dude, like fucking Matt Ellen should be supporting this tour. Because it, there's a lot of, not only similarities in the music where it has this like indie rock folk type of vibe, but just in, in the vocal delivery and this more observational uh, in the moment type of commentary. Mm -hmm.
1: And I love that new Courtney Barnett and Kurt Vile record. It's really,
0: really good. Which is not surprising, but so I guess my question is these are artists that are on, you know, CBS uh, and it, it was that. Did that have an influence in any way on you deciding I want to put out this type of record? Because there may be some commercial viability within it.
1: Um, maybe not so much commercial viability as just general accessibility. I could see myself getting more show offers because of this record, or you know, certain chances—just more of a chance to get through it to people. Like I, do, I don't see it as my big you know, ambitious debut, I see it as something that hopefully people will show promise so that I can get opportunities to, sorry, hopefully one day make my big, grand, ambitious debut. Um, I don't really feel like I'm at a, you know, at a point as an artist where I would feel like I am really deserving of like being famous. I feel like I sort of need to fine tune my, you know, my methodical approach to get to that point.
0: Do you? So you want to be famous?
1: I'd like that, yeah. I mean, I'd like to be in a place where a lot of people are hearing what I'm doing and therefore I'm, you know, emotionally and musically connecting with a lot of people. Do you think,
0: how do you think you would handle that?
1: Probably not well, but I'm thinking... <laughs>
0: <laughs> At least you're honest about uh, that.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, short term, I I don't, I can't do anything else. And I say that, you know honestly i think you went
0: to high school for this
1: yeah i essentially went to high school and did this all day and i didn't i didn't learn i mean i I don't that's not to say that people who go to conventional high school necessarily even learn the skills that they need to make it in the workplace or 100 percent.
0: i have a few questions about that and, and obviously this was a question that started to swirl around when you mentioned that you went to school for five hours a day in high school and you literally just played bass all day, and then you went home and you played bass all day, as you said. Mm-hmm. So what what was the use of a teacher in this? Were they just a proctor who watched over you, a babysitter, just to like make sure you weren't just leaving school or that you were actually doing something?
1: We actually have an off-campus policy. Um, but they were they were there more, I think, as as conversational uh, you know, they really, they were great people to talk to. And they were definitely sort of like secondary parents or older siblings to me in ways. They were just really great people. And you know, what they would do with me and I think with a lot of other kids is they would think about something that the kids in the school were, you know, a specific kid in the school was interested in. And if they saw something that reminded them of that kid, they would like show it to them. So I got a lot of, you know, music links and and things like that from different staff members and you know they turned me on to a lot of cool stuff. And at the same time, you know some of them were also musicians and artists, and we would collaborate all the time. I mean, there was a guy, uh, a guy named Phil Glaze, Phil Glazer, who uh, played drums, and we would jam all the time. And you know we had a, we had a lot of fun. So they were definitely sort of like, they were more like friends. They were more like my peers than. Um, than my teachers or than authority figures.
0: It's super interesting. Cause you really got to throw down a ridiculous multiplier on the thing that you actually love. So you luckily found whatever it was, which was music, which is what you wanted to do day in and day out, just all the time. Did your peers were, were your peers as lucky as you to have figured out a path so early on?
1: Like my, like, my peers at school.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So there were, I mean, it's a lot of free time to kind of just twiddle your thumbs or browse the internet or play on Facebook or whatever you could have been doing at that time where you took full advantage to say, this is what I'm into. This is what I want to do with my life. But you figure that out really early on. Mm -hmm. Not everyone is as fortunate.
1: Well, the thing about, I think arts and ideas, Sudbury in particular is that they put equal value on something like, playing a video game or, you know, playing outside with your friends to, you know, me, you know, studying bass guitar. Like those things are not, you know, there's no hierarchy of needs. Um, But there were kids who like, who were friends of mine who, you know, we sort of ended up playing music together. Um, There were kids who were a little bit younger than me who I sort of taught some stuff and we you know, would play together and we had pretty similar tastes, you know, we were all sort of into like vaguely punk stuff, vaguely indie stuff. So we would play at like the end of you know, the school end of the year events and stuff. And I sort of could feel, um, you know, that they were getting into music and that they, they wanted to do it. I, I should hope partially thanks to my encouragement a little bit.
0: Yeah. It, I mean, you're clearly a leader by nature. Hey, yeah, you're an influencer. It's really interesting because I feel like I keep coming back to this one reoccurring thought that you love curating and you're giving back to people and you're just a heavy influence on those who are around you. Do you feel that in your circles, a lot of people look to you for guidance?
1: Yeah, from time to time, Um, specifically about music. I think because people just know that I'm, you know, I'm a music, a music freak, a music nut. And so I think in a lot of the time about conversing about music in particular. But yeah, I mean, my mom talks about it and she says, you know, from the time you were little, you were always, you know, whatever it was that you were into, that was what like the kids in your class were into or things like that.
0: Fast forward to now you've put out this record and you said this is not going to be the record that is this like amazing debut. It's just what you wanted to put out for the time. Have you thought about the trajectory of what you want your music career to look like? At what point do you want it to be where it hits this chord, it strikes a chord, and everyone knows who you are, and you're now famous for the art that you're putting out there? And then what happens after that?
1: I mean, ideally, third or fourth record. Third or fourth record. Um,
0: you need to figure out how to like perform first.
1: Yeah. Like perform like with a band?
0: yeah. If that's the vision, which it seems like it is.
1: It is, yeah. And that's something, I, that's something I'm definitely sort of workshopping.
0: All of these shows that are being thrown your way now, are you taking all of them?
1: I'm trying to take as many of them as I can, yeah. I love, because I love doing it.
0: Because I remember when, when Jordan and I first got a singer in one of the bands we were in, I knew that once we had enough material to go perform, it was trial by fire. He had to figure out who he was by just doing it. And so I booked, I think I booked 10 shows in the first month. We just played like two or three shows a weekend. And he did all the classic things. And you've already played shows, obviously, so you kind of have an idea. But now you're trying to develop this whole persona as Matt Ellen. Because I'm sure the bands that Jordan and I saw, part of it was you being you and doing your thing and being spastic and high energy. But you also had your friends with you to do this. Now, is the vocal point supposed to be Matt Ellen- the musician, the artist, the songwriter, the entity with the rest of the band? Or is it supposed to be still a collective if you find the right people to play this material with?
1: Um, it could go either way. I mean, when I perform, I want the focus to be the songs. I want people to be in a place where they can, you know, listen to the lyrics. So like this, this set I'm planning um, for December 2nd, you know, I want there to be a band and I want there to be, you know, a drummer. But I don't want it to be like a loud, raging rock show. I want it to be more kind of like a recital, almost, so that you know the songs can can stand as they are.
0: Do you know the band? Um, is it Pussifer, Pusifer, whichever one? Yeah, I Maynard think James I know Keenan them. of yeah. Tool, right? You know they're set up on stage. No, it isn't. So I've seen that, and this is very, to me, very reminiscent of what you're kind of going for he actually will invite friends and put them on stage and have them kind of sit around a table and like hang out. And I almost feel like I've, ever, I've seen a couple performances. maybe the musicians sit down a little bit, maybe I'm mistaken, but it feels like it's, it's a little bit more lackadaisical. It's a lot, it's, it's very fun. And it is about being a bit more stripped down. And I could be completely wrong, but that's my interpretation that it is more stripped down. And so you do understand the lyrical content and you can really get into it. Have you ever thought about uh, what this could actually look like if you have your, your band there and everything else that would be?
1: Yeah. I mean, I played shows that were sort of in the vein of what I'm trying to do now where I had a drum machine and I had a friend of mine playing keyboard and a friend of mine playing bass and just me singing and playing guitar. <clears throat> and that was, um, there, was a, there was a little bit more of a, a relaxed or you know sort of like a, a chill factor to that. Like when you talk about pavement, a band like Pavement, like their whole thing is kind of just like let it all hang out, super sloppy, su- you know, almost like effortless, and that's that's kind of a cool thing I think that you can do if you're trying to make the songs the focus. Um, if you're trying to, you know, do a super memorable performance, um, unless you really feel like you know the lyrics as a as a songwriter can can cover up for the fact that you guys aren't doing anything, then that might be something to set aside. Um, but in terms of, like, like I have tried to make my performances really theatrical. Like, I had this one um, at Gouchard, you know, last... I guess it must have been last summer. No, it couldn't have been last summer because Goucher was actually in session. It was, like, during May of this year. And I had my friend make, like, this giant bug, and I was going to have someone, like, have sex with the bug on stage. And I had everybody dress up in, like, zany costumes. It was, like, a whole thing. And it ended up just sort of collapsing. Like, nobody wore their costumes, and, like... We decided that we couldn't have someone fuck the bug because it wouldn't, you know, it was, we were worried about, you know, maybe crossing a line for some people. So it was just like all of the things that I had planned to make this, like this super theatrical, conceptual show, just flopped. And then we just
0: ended up playing. But I respect the fact that you had the vision, and I hope you keep following those impulses because I think the music can stand for itself, but those are the other things that will also. At interest and and become memorable and I think the the world the culture in general is like in 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 such need of of just absurd things that are interesting and memorable hmm please do that yeah I totally agree whatever your influences on that keep following that whatever the itch is that you need to scratch for that keep scratching it because that is what's going to pay off, for sure. That is what, what, I mean, when Jordan and I look at probably the music that that we remember the most is because it hit on all levels. Yeah, I think of like Flaming Lips, for example, mm-hmm. their live show. Matt, I've never asked, what's your favorite of all the national chain pizza restaurants?
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, this is a hot topic these days, isn't it? I think so. Oh, God. Um, I, I kind of like Domino's. Their pizza isn't necessarily good pizza if you're talking about it from like, I don't know, if you're talking about it from like the standard of like a good slice of like New York pizza. Like, no, I don't prefer Domino's to that.
0: Is that the standard?
1: I guess that's the standard. Okay. Yeah, like,
0: of course. That, oh yeah, New York pizza. That's. All right, that. no, I'm just saying, you know, that's the culinary standard. It's interesting you say Domino's though, because I saw like something, they have like 8% growth where Papa John's and Pizza Hut have been kind of stagnant this year. Well, Pizza Hut's fucking disgusting why no, do you say that see, I fucking love me some pizza hut that's the best but I think Domino's did some rebranding and they're doing really well now Papa John's is taking that hit because of the football stuff yeah how do you feel about that
1: I think um,
0: do you kneel for pizza
1: I think they should probably be taking that hit I think if anybody gives a shit about that then then fuck them whoa we just crossed over into some unsavory whoa, territory whoa, whoa.
0: <laughs> I wanted to keep going but I guess we can move oh on I'm sorry no, you're good, Jordan. Do you have any other uh, poignant questions? Uh, do you follow Fed content on Instagram? Do I follow what? Fed content. What is that? You'll just have to figure that out for yourself, young child. So as we wrap this up, uh, Matt, uh, you obviously have music out. It's on Apple Music and Spotify and what? Bandcamp. Yeah, it's on Bandcamp can find it on SoundCloud as well. So, if people just type Matt Ellen, spelled as it, will be spelled on the description of this episode. They'll find you on there. Yeah, that's right. Is there anywhere else people should look to find you?
1: Um. Well, I have a Facebook page, and I also
0: have an Instagram, which is Matt Ellen Music. All right. Just one word. So when uh, when Matt, you're looking up Fed content on Instagram. I don't know. I don't know what. Do they have to search if they want to find you specifically on Facebook? Do they have to search Towson Tom?
1: Uh, yeah, well, that's my my Facebook. Um, that's my personal Facebook page, but I do have like a Facebook fan page that you can like. How do you get to that? That would that's just Matt Ellen. Okay.
0: Are you on Twitter,
1: Matt? I'm not do yet. Do 18 year olds think, do Twitter? Yeah, I think they do, but I haven't. I haven't really made the leap yet. What about
0: got, musically?
1: Musically, like as as means of promotion for their
0: music no no no. the app the social app oh musically
1: i remember one time you messaged me and you were like that's going to be the next big thing Uh was i right i think maybe i mean i i definitely hear people talking about it for like
0: 14 15 year old girls right and that should be your demographic man i mean fucking look at you
1: fucking look at me (laughs) I'm still I'm still worried about the I probably shouldn't be bringing this up again but did I really throw did I really throw this off by bringing up the the Papa John's thing? You what do, do you not. think? What do you think? I don't know, you look kind of concerned. Me? Yeah. <laughs> I just figured that like most We're people very who, far most from people concerned. who listen to this don't care about like the kneeling thing.
0: No, no, I wouldn't imagine. I I know Matt Halpern, he's Made it clear that he doesn't want this to be a platform for I guess political discussion. oh
1: no, 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 yeah, but like
0: I don't give a fuck. okay, yeah and, and I don't, like the fact that that's even like become a politicized thing is is absurd to me as well
1: Right. I just didn't think of what I was saying as like a controversial opinion like i felt I feel like that's a pretty commonly held like liberal
0: belief sure, but you know. Donald Trump is our president and a lot of people voted for him as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you're just living in your liberal bubble, Matt Ellen. That's right. My my echo chamber. Do you? I'm, I'm curious. Do you ever go out of your way to engage with people knowing that they have different opinions or cultural experiences? And I think college is a great time to do that. Now, I know you go to a very liberal arts college, so it may be more difficult. But even like just people of different, like, cultures and backgrounds?
1: Um, I don't know that I really go out of my way to, but if I'm in a situation where that's the case, I mean, sure. I mean, I've found recently myself kind of at odds with, like... Because I I feel like a lot of the, the commonly held beliefs at my college are more sort of, like, centrist, which is something that I don't really vibe with. I don't know. I feel like... So when you're talking about, like when you're talking about people who face oppression and then you're saying that to dehumanize those who oppress them is like just as bad, like it isn't really, I feel, because the people who are being dehumanized don't walk down the street every day and, you know, get weird looks from passerbys because of their beliefs.
0: So you're saying there's a false equivalency being argued?
1: Yeah, I do. That that's like, that it's like hypocritical to say like, I don't like talking to nazis because it's the same as saying like i don't like talking to like you know this marginalized
0: group like that's not it's not the same well yeah no shit man but it's also hard to reason with unreasonable people unfortunately uh, but you know one place where you can go to engage with with people of different you know political beliefs and and cultural experiences and and whatnot you can go to Domino's, matt yeah all roads lead back to dominance. that's where you'll find me so with that and uh, if not you can go to facebook.com slash group slash chocolate croissants there we go uh with all of that uh that's it you did good bud thank you
1: thanks for having me yeah man
0: house and tom
1: on the yeah on the air
0: what uh how'd you feel about this
1: this was really fun i think there was a lot of great discussion
0: do uh? Do you still do like any of the other YouTube videos or anything else? I haven't in a while, but I'd be open to doing them. You should. Yeah. Like, I think you should. I don't know anything you'd create. I'd be interested in in consuming. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, and um, I'd I'd love to see you create a Twitter. I don't even have a Twitter, but I'd love to see you create a Twitter and just do your shtick on there. Kind of hone this comedy side of your life through Twitter. Yeah. Why Twitter though? I don't know. I just feel like. Matt would be really good as a social commentator. I'd agree. I'd agree. The gopher, the, the goucher goon. That's
1: what they call me on campus. You've Not got really, all I...
0: kinds of, of aliases.
1: I do, yeah. Well, they, well a common, a common thing that I say a lot is that people call me things that they don't really call me. And that's based on, heavily on alliteration. So if I'm eating popcorn right now, I could say, well, they call me Popcorn Pete.
0: That's where my mind went Dude, to. Dude, I love alliterations. We've had so many, as Jordan would say, false finishes. Now, would you say alliterations as plural? No, I guess alliteration. But I oftentimes think of isn't an alliteration of uh, with three of the same. Matt, you're the uh, English I mean, English major, Smith? yeah. I think
1: it's just I think it's just alliteration. But you could
0: no, no. But alliteration I always thought had to come. In, Why would it need three in words of three? I guess I always think of a classic. Uh, Dawn down day From nothing gold can stay Because if you're right then that's really weird Right Well we have something to google once we shut this shit down Uh, Matt thanks so much You were wonderful And I'm really excited about The idea of sharing your ideas And your art with uh, A lot of new people
1: Thank you I'm excited to Send this podcast to my friends and family Once it's on the world wide web
0: Wow you didn't. You have not lived uh, an existence without the World Wide Web. Yeah, that's a true fact about me. That is weird. Wow. Uh, so as I feel and acknowledge my age, uh, we want to thank all of you listening uh, and, and sharing your attention. We we greatly respect it and appreciate it. Uh, a couple things that I always share at the end. Again, the Facebook group. We took some questions from listeners in there. And that is what we do every week with our guests. If you'd like to join facebook.com groups slash chocolate it's a private group. There's a lot of great engagement. If you want in, just send a request and, and we'll accept you. Uh, also iTunes and Apple podcasts, uh, you can rate and review chocolate croissants. That makes a big difference uh, for us, whether you realize it or not. We also want to thank our sponsors, Nada Tattoo and Rode Microphones. And finally, uh, whatever podcast app that you choose to use, uh, if you type in Chocolate Croissants, there should be a subscribe button. You hit that, and then every Monday morning, it uh, is downloaded uh, to your phone, and then you don't have to use your data uh, if you don't have Wi-Fi because you're driving or in the gym uh, or, or at Domino's. Right? I don't know if all Domino's have public Wi-Fi at this point. They should, though. And that 8% growth would probably double.
1: Am I, am I meant to...
0: Yes, you're meant to, to, to <laughs> comment on that, I think
1: I think that every Domino's in the world should have... I think it, it should become a general hotspot for Wi-Fi. Like, I think that they should remake Domino's restaurants into like, Apple Store-type places or like, those coffee shops with especially good Wi-Fi.
0: Matt, why don't you have a podcast?
1: Um, it's a question that I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to give you a no comment on that one.
0: If you do one, I hope it's with a headset. Why
1: do you say that?
0: Man, I'm calling back something from like an hour and a half ago. It's a More see, performers this is, uh, maybe a headset, the Garth Brooks oh, thing. Maybe, wait, wait, maybe wait, you okay. shouldn't have a podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah. All right, guys.
0: Uh, we love you for, for your attention. We'll see you uh, later today and this week in, uh, in the Facebook group. Uh, as far as episode 32, either Justin and I will do it or Matt will be doing it from the road. We're not sure, but we will find out, uh, with you all as well. Until then. Bye-bye. Hey guys, it's Jordan again. I know I just said bye-bye, but that was bullshit. Here's why. I wanted to, one last time, show some love to Episode 31's sponsor, Nada Tattoo. And I just pulled this from their website because I think it's the most succinct way to communicate why they're such an interesting company. So Nata Tattoo, they are the premier all-natural, 100% USDA-certified organic tattoo aftercare line. They believe in sustainably resourced ingredients that are cruelty-free and of the highest quality. Their mission is to educate tattoo artists and collectors of the optimal way to preserve and care for their tattoos and skin while knowing the products have been formulated and made responsibly. Their tattoo foaming soap and aftercare lotion will allow your skin to heal beautifully, while their tattoo balm will keep your ink looking bright and bold for years to come. Sounds good to me. So again, if you use the checkout code CHOCOLATE25, you'll receive, you guessed it, 25% off all products. That's CHOCOLATE in all caps followed by the numbers 25. You can visit them now at their website. Ready for this? nat-a-tat2.com If you missed that, just check the episode description from wherever you're playing this audio. It's all right there. All right, that's it. We did it. Again, much love to all of you for checking out episode 31. I will see you in the Facebook group. And for real this time...